and now I have to preach. <laughs> I, I've, I've been wondering for a couple of weeks how I'm going to get from that to this. You know? But actually, it's, it's not as far a leap as you might think, because the, the session has taken a step in the direction the prophet Joel recommended for the people of Israel when they were in a desperate situation. Oddly enough, as I research this, uh, we don't actually know the historical setting of Joel's book. We don't even know what century he lived in. But the immediate situation is clear. In chapters 1 and 2, he describes this disaster that has befallen them. It's a, it's a drought and it's a plague of locusts that has devastated their crops and threatened their lives. Joel uses exaggeration, powerful, evocative language to draw attention to the severity of the crisis they're in. He compares this plague of locusts to this mighty army that's attacking them. And the underlying assumption under all of this is that this plague, this disaster that's befallen them, is God's punishment for their sin. So in the last half of chapter 2, Joel sets out God's prescription for what they need to do about it. And as it turns out, Pastor Brian and the elders are following much the same pattern that the Lord gave the Israelites. Our leaders are blowing the trumpet, as Joel says here. They're calling us to get serious with God and to humble ourselves before Him. So let's look at what the Lord prescribed for Israel through Joel, see how it fits with the direction our church is going, and as we see God's guidance here in a posture of repentance. This is Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Rend your hearts and not your garments. To rend means to tear, and to tear one's clothes in that culture was a sign of very strong emotion. It could have been uh, repentance and grief. It could also be frustration and anger, but very strong emotion. And the point of this instruction here to rend our our hearts instead of our garments, is that the condition of our hearts is much more important to God than anything we might do outwardly. If our hearts are not right, if they're not torn, broken over our sin, then no matter what we do or say, it really doesn't matter. An insincere apology, for example, is worse than no apology at all. Uh, Barbie and I have some friends, uh, Kent and Betsy, they have two children, Brian and Jenny, and we were visiting them one time when their kids were little, and Brian did something that hurt his sister, and, and the parents said, Brian, apologize to your sister. Sorry. Jenny, tell your brother you forgive him. I forgive you. Well, I mean, I didn't think that was very effective. <laughs> they said the right words, but it really wasn't in the heart, and it's the heart that matters. It's our hearts that need to be torn over our own sin. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Twice in these two verses, he says, return. Return to me. Return to the Lord your God. And the Hebrew word for return here is the typical word for for repent. It means to stop going the direction you're going, do a U-turn, and head back towards God. It seems to me there there are essentially three elements in this U-turn. One is we recognize that we've sinned, that what we did or failed to do was wrong. Maybe it's our words, maybe it was our actions, maybe it's just the the thoughts and and attitudes of our hearts, but something was wrong. It's the realization that we were wrong that should break our hearts. And then secondly, we need to acknowledge that sin to the appropriate people. 
certainly to God, because all sin is ultimately against him, but to anyone who was affected by it. That might be publicly or privately, depending on the situation, but we need to confess our wrong as wrong to the people we wronged. And here's where it gets tricky. (laughs) Because our hearts are deceitful, and we often try to minimize what we did. We call it by some euphemism. We don't state it plainly. We say we misspoke instead of we lied or something like that. And as I've thought about this for myself, I'll tell you what, my pride squirms at the thought of having to apologize for wrong that I've done. I, I, I just keep trying to find some way to get out of that or minimize the pain to my pride. But friends, we need to do this right. We can't be making excuses for our behavior. We can't try to explain all the reasons that led us to do this or that. That's irrelevant. The point is, I did it. I take responsibility for it. I own up to it. So we've stopped going the wrong way. We've turned around. Now we need to head back to God, which means change our ways. As John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. We can't just say, I'm sorry, I repent, and then let it go at that. We have to change something. We're going to change our behavior, change our words, change our attitude, change our tone of voice, facial expression, something's got to change. Return, return to the Lord. Recognize we've sinned, acknowledge that sin to the appropriate people, and change our ways. But, you know, friends, it isn't just the events of the last year that we need to be thinking about here. I've been rereading the letters of Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation after Pastor Brian preached on those. And I was struck by the fact that while Jesus has a commendation for almost every church, he also sees something in every church that needs to be corrected. Over and over again, Jesus says, I know this about you, and I know this about you, and I know this about you. So he knows all that's good about us, and there is a lot that's really good about this church. But he also sees things in us that are not right. So as we enter this season, this 40-day season of prayer and fasting, I hope that none of us will treat it casually. I hope you won't just brush it off as irrelevant to you because you weren't involved in the troubles of last year. Each of us has some things in our lives that the, the Spirit of Jesus is trying to point out to us, and we need to be open to hearing what he has to say. So we're going to sit with this for 40 days. This is not a one-time, one-and-done sort of thing. What is the Spirit of Jesus saying to our church? What is he saying to you personally? I recommend the spiritual inventory that was uh, attached to one of the documents that was available to us last week. It was also emailed out to you. I went through that this last week. Hmm. (laughs) That's a good checklist. (laughs) It covers a lot of different areas of our lives and, and gives us a chance to ask the Holy Spirit to search us and try us, as Psalm 139 says, and then to show us what he sees in us in lots of different areas. And I sincerely hope and pray that we'll all be using the the daily devotionals that Pastor Brian is is producing. They're on the table in the back, as are all the other documents, and they'll be emailed out again this week. Another set is available now. Because no matter where we are spiritually, there's almost certainly something in our lives that requires a U-turn back to the Lord. So let's give him a chance to show us where that is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now, when I enter a time of confession for my own sins, I typically sort of scan back through my recent history, and I'm looking for things that I did wrong. I I might 
I'm thinking of, you know, where did I speak unkindly to someone because I've been known to not think before I speak. I'm looking for ways where I fudge the truth to make myself look better. I'm looking for times when I let my thoughts wander out into the weeds where they shouldn't be, whatever. These are sins of commission, and I'm asking the Lord to show me these things. But I don't often ask the Holy Spirit to show me things that I should have done that I didn't do. Those are sins of omission. And I really think that for most of us, that's where we need to pay more careful attention because we're a really nice group of people. I mean, I mean that sincerely. We are great folks. We have mostly stopped doing the things that our parents and grandparents and pastors told us not to do. Right? Pretty much cleaned up the outside. <clears throat> but are we doing the things Jesus told us to do? The second greatest of which was to love each other in the same selfless, self-sacrificial way he loved us. And when I think of that standard, I think, oh, geez, <laughs> I'm not doing so great. How are you doing? The good news in all of this is that Joel encourages this heart change by reminding us who God is. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. This, this is who God is. This is his nature. He's gracious, which means he gives us good things that we don't deserve. He's compassionate. He sympathizes with us in our troubles. Pastor Brian rang that, that's, that uh, sound quite a bit in some of his sermons on Revelation. He is slow to anger. Thank God he doesn't have a hot temper, right? Oh, man, we'd all be toast. He's abounding in love, not stingily parceling out little crumbs of love to us, but abounding, overflowing in love for us. And he's the kind of God who always relents from sending calamity when we repent, rend our hearts, and return to him. So if, if we keep who he is in mind, then that, that makes it easier to hear what the, what the Spirit might have to say to us, that, that bad performance review that, that Jerry referred to. When, when that comes from the Holy Spirit, if we remember it's coming from this kind of a God, then we don't push it off. We don't have to be defensive against those, those thoughts. No, we can hear it, and then we can do what he says. A major part of what the prophet calls for here is a sacred or a solemn assembly of the people. He says it twice, once in Joel 1, verse 14, declare a holy fast, call a solemn assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And he says it again more completely in Joel 2, verse 15 and following, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Well, God's people all through time, from this time on uh, up into our, our time, have been calling for solemn assemblies for one reason or another. And our elders have called for a solemn assembly on Sunday, November 17th. That's a different date, as Jerry said, than was in your devotional, so November 17th. We'll get more details about that as we get closer to it, but please put it in your calendar. Plan to be here. It'll be a very important time for our congregation. 
So here's what we can learn about a solemn assembly from Joel 2. It is a holy, sacred meeting. He says, consecrate the assembly. In other words, we need to set that time and the people apart for a special occasion with God. This is not a congregational meeting where we do the business of the church. This is a time for us to do business with God, a time when we come together to deal with our corporate and individual sin in the presence of the Holy One. Secondly, this is for everyone. He mentions priests, those who minister before the Lord, old people and children, even nursing babies, and all those who live in the land. Well, I I hope it's okay if we don't have the nursing babies here, but we we will include as many as we can. This is for everybody in our church. And this is important. It's so important, he says, it should take priority over virtually everything else in our lives, including, as he says here, the consummation of a marriage. He prescribes sackcloth for the priests, the religious professionals. Sackcloth was like burlap, very rough cloth. You used to carry a load of wood or potatoes or something. Very scratchy. Can you imagine wearing a burlap bag next to your skin? Very uncomfortable. And in that culture, wearing sackcloth was a symbol of humbling oneself before the Lord. In our context, you you don't really need to wear a burlap bag, but the parallel would be that we don't come to the assembly wearing our finest clothes and jewelry. It's not a time to feel good about ourselves. It's a time to humble ourselves before God. He calls for them to mourn, to wail, to weep. We need to rend our hearts, to ask God to break our hearts. This includes a holy fast, and Brian has spoken and written to us about the role of fasting as we relate to God in this way, and I hope many of you are participating in this. If you haven't yet made a commitment, you can still sign up on the table out in the foyer or just make the commitment to the Lord. I mean, it's encouraging to us to see how many people are participating in this fast together with us, but the real deal is (laughs) your commitment to the Lord. Do you care enough about this to to fast, to go without something that that you want? It's a way of saying to to the Lord, I want you more than food. I want these things I'm asking of you more than food. And if we will fast to the point of hunger and weakness, that will be an aid in humbling ourselves before God because it reminds us of our abject dependence on Him. Yeah. And finally, a solemn assembly is a time to plead with God for mercy. Joel 2.17 Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? We might pray, Spare your people, O Lord. Have mercy on us and forgive us our sins individually and corporately. Spare us even from the temporal consequences of our sin. Spare us from sinking into irrelevance as a church. Guide us through this time of self-examination and repentance. Guide our transition team. Guide our pastoral search. Guide our elders all to the end that we might become a bright light in your hand, shining the love and the truth of Jesus into our city and around the world. I don't know if if you realize it, but God's reputation in our town has been sullied by what has happened here. The net result is the unbelievers around us look at us and they say, yep, this just reinforces my conviction that those evangelicals are a bad lot. They're judgmental, critical, hostile. They, They fight among one another. 
They say they worship God, but I can't see it doesn't much good. I'm not interested in their God. This is what happens. And Joel was concerned for God's reputation too. He asks, why should they, the unbelieving people around them, why should they say of us, your people, where is their God? We don't see the evidence of it. This appeal to God's reputation is the most solid ground on which we can stand. Nothing is more important to God than his name, his fame, his reputation among the peoples. We dare not ask for his help in restoring and renewing and reviving our church just so we can go back to being the comfortable middle-class congregation we were before. We dare not ask for his blessings for ourselves just so we can attract more people and that'll mean a bigger budget then we can remodel something or fix the furnace. It's not about us. We're asking God to spare us and revive us for the sake of the glory he will get through us when we are the people of God we're supposed to be. Chapter 2, verse 18 is the key turning point in the book. Chapter 1 up through 2.17, we've had this (laughs) very clear, powerful, dramatic presentation of the problem. We've had God's prescription for how they're to deal with it. And now we get to verse 18. Then, and this assumes that the people respond in the ways they were just called to, then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I'm sending you new grain, grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. And he goes on to describe how God will drive out the locusts and bring new harvests to the people. He speaks to the land and the animals in the land and to the people, and he says, don't be afraid, but rejoice in the Lord and the great things he'll do. God promises to repay them for the years the locusts have eaten. You maybe heard that phrase. God will repay for the years the locusts have eaten. It comes from Joel too here. I look at this and I think, okay, (laughs) what do we do with that? How, How does this apply to us? In general terms, I think the promises God makes in this last half of chapter 2 are the kinds of things we can expect to see when we humble ourselves before God, tear our hearts in repentance, and plead with him for mercy with prayer and fasting. In other words, if we do the things they were called to do, then we can expect to see God do the things he promises here. Here's what I see. Abundant provision. Grain, new wine, enough to satisfy you fully. He says you'll have plenty to eat until you're full. In their context, that was physical provision. Food for themselves, food so that they could make offerings to the Lord. But few of us are insecure about where our next meal is coming from, right? I mean, we're not worried about that. So what does this look like for us? What kind of provision are we looking for? What's the blessing you're asking him to leave behind after our 40 days are over? Well, I'll tell you some of what I want. I I, I would love to see us unified. I'd love to see uh, soft hearts towards one another. Uh, There are relationships in this congregation that are broken, and and I I long to see uh, softness, repentance, forgiveness uh, offered, uh, unity, all of that. I want more of the Holy Spirit's influence in my life and in our life together. As as the song says, more love, more power, more of you in my life. That's one of the things I want. I want greater faith myself and for all of us to believe that that God wants to do great things 
through me, through you, through us together. I want to see many, many new believers coming to faith in Jesus Christ through the loving ministry of the individuals in this congregation. And I want to see us as a church send out many more workers into the unreached, unengaged places of the world where the name of Jesus is not known. I mean, believe it or not, there are people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Or if they've heard the name of Jesus, they don't know a single Christian. We need to send workers out there. So those are the kinds of abundant provisions I'm looking for. What are you looking for? Would you ask God for that? Be bold, be brave. Ask God for those big things. What would abundant provision look like? Secondly, he says he'll remove the scorn and shame that we've incurred. People will no longer drop their eyes and say somberly, oh, so sorry to hear about your church. We'll be able to hold up our heads among the the people of God in Loveland and rejoice in the great things that he's done for us. He says he'll take away our fear. I don't know if you're afraid or not. My fear has been that our church would sink into irrelevance or go out of existence altogether. You know, Jesus said he'd build his church. He didn't say anything about this church. Churches close their doors all the time. Well, a very realistic concern is it will become a place where old people like myself get cared for, but a place that has little or no impact in our city or the world. I don't want that. But God promises that if we follow his prescription, he'll take away our fear and we will experience joy and gladness at the great things he is doing through us. And that's the last and and most important part. God will be glorified in and through us. This is the bottom line. This is the ultimate goal in all that we're doing here. To use Joel's words here at the end of of, uh, chapter 2, we will rejoice in the Lord our God. We will praise the name of the Lord our God who has worked wonders for us. We will know that he is in our midst and that he is the Lord and there is no other. Amen. Let it be. So, Father, we praise you. (laughs) We rejoice that you are gracious. You are compassionate. You are slow to anger. You're abounding in love. And you are a God who relents from sending calamity. And because of all that, because of who you are, Lord, we come boldly to the the throne of grace and we plead for mercy. We pray that you'll forgive us, that you'd convict us first, break our hearts, our hard hearts that don't want to be convicted, Lord. Forgive us and heal us individually, corporately. Lord, restore, revive, renew us to the point that the unbelieving people who know Faith Church will say, God is in that church. For the sake of Christ, we ask it. Amen.